transthyroid and amyloidosis, I mean, it's absolutely amazing the difference, the clinical impact that gene therapy has. So transthyroid and amyloidosis is a, transthyroid is a um, thyroid, it's a transporter gene and a mutation in that is amyloidogenic and to the nerve, to the heart, and sometimes to the back of the eye, depending on the mutation in that gene. And you can basically cut out that gene and it doesn't really make a major difference. There are other ways to transport the protein. So you can do without that gene essentially. And doing it without the gene does not only stop the progression, but actually causes regression in symptoms and in the amyloid deposits in the affected organs. That's Dr. Ashley Carr, consultant neurologist, talking about the frankly astonishing results from single gene therapy trials in patients with a particular form of hereditary amyloidosis. Ashling is based at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery in London and specialises in inflammatory and acquired neuropathies. I Zoom bombed her study on a rainy Thursday evening to talk to her about neuropathies, a subject close to my heart as I reminisced about it being the gateway drug that got me interested in neurology as a medical student. We talk about clinical presentation, top tips for history and examination, how to investigate and treat neuropathies, and what's around the corner in terms of new and exciting treatments. Well, look, thank you for letting me intrude upon your evening. It's actually really kind of you to spend a bit of time chatting. We we started doing this at like, um, so I, I was going to say down in Teesside, but it's really up in Teesside relative to you, isn't it? Um, we started doing like sort of lockdown kind mm. of Zoom teaching yeah, for the registrars and um, kind of was recording it and then decided we'd like sort of just publish it online as a little kind of record of the teaching that, the, that anybody that couldn't dial in could download. Yeah. And it's, it's morphed into one of, you know, one of the most niche podcasts you've ever come across with, you know, like about 30, 30 downloads per one. Um, mm. But it's actually been, been really nice to do. And um, so Lou Wiblin, who's one of my colleagues at, at James Cook, um, is, is, has kind of gone off on a sort of podcast bender, so to speak, mm-hmm. and interviewing all sorts of people. Um, but one of, the th- one of the things that was definitely lacking from when I was speaking to our trainees was, was like some, some sort of common sense around neuropathies and particularly kind of inflammatory neuropathies, mm-hmm. um, which, I, I mean, maybe you'll agree with this, but I think they're skirted over in medical school a bit, aren't yeah. they? And um, I'm just rewriting the fourth year curriculum for our guys and I've managed to sneak in a neuropathy day into mm. the uh, teaching because I think it, otherwise it's just nowhere. Um, mm. I don't know. I mean, do you find that when you're uh, teaching undergrad stuff and sounds like you're quite heavily involved in that, Ashling? Well, so I, I did a lot of undergrad for the first couple of years as a consultant and I've moved more into SHO postgrad training, sort of pre. Mm. Um, so it's actually not that different what I teach those two groups. Um, but what I tried to do is to tr- um, concentrate on the clinical signs yeah. on the undergrad people so because i think whenever you're being brought to see neurology patients you're te- you tend to be brought to see cns signs and you know it's hard to contextualize that whenever you've never found a peripheral pattern yeah. either so i i that's what i concentrated on on the juniors and then i 
did to the pattern, what does length dependent even mean? But you get hammer that home. Yeah. How do you find it? And when you find length dependent um, pattern, then what's the differential diagnosis of that? And then whenever you have a neuropathy, when you examine, but it's non-length dependent or there are extra features like pain, where does that lead you? So I think that that's kind of the way it's it's hammering home the like a pyramidal pattern of weakness versus a you know and and all of the the gate stuff that's what i'd really concentrated on and try to get them to think of the commonest and not the most ridiculous causes yeah. Yeah. From the, the undergraduates and then expand it a bit whenever they get to it and it's, it's slightly different in queen square i suppose because all the shos what they see are the inpatient neuropathies mm. so they odd they see the poems and they see the vasculitis and so why are they different and to the how you would work up something as an outpatient okay so yeah that that's that's the way i approach it that sounds good i mean i think um in terms of kind of audience for this podcast mm-hmm. um the it's been a sort of a mixture of medical students uh SHUs. i think quite a lot of medical students will be listening to it because in about six weeks they've got their neurology week uh with their kind of neuropathy theme so i suppose it would be really helpful i think it'd be kind of helpful just to start with um kind of horror of all horrors like like the peripheral nerve as an entity (laughs) and which like should we should we be teaching medical students the kind of overarching kind of setup of a peripheral nerve axon myelin all that kind of stuff and does that is that a useful concept for them to have in their head and if so why well yes i think so i think um i was trained in quite a traditional way in medical school so i i we didn't do the problem-based learning we did basic sciences and anatomy and physiology Mm. and only really started touching on clinical clinically relevant things in about third or fourth year so um, I suppose I'm, I'm a bit skewed, but I think it's like learning the alphabet before you learn to spell. Um, it's, it is important to understand what things are made of and how they work. And then whenever you are, um, you know, finding clinical signs and probably more importantly, listening to a history, you can you have a, a molecular level or an anatomical level of understanding. And I think neurology more than possibly anything else this is why i was attracted to it in the first place there's a real there's a clinical correlate to the ana- anatomical and the molecular pathology that you can hear the patient describing in the symptoms and then you go right back down and understand that and choose your treatments based on that so i think that from a peripheral nerve perspective when you are examining a patient, finding the pattern of weakness, finding the correlating sensory and motor deficit, and then looking at the pattern in the neurophysiology, not only to confirm the diagnosis, but to shorten your differential diagnosis and lead you to treatment decisions. I think that basic anatomy, neuroanatomy, understanding axons and understanding myelination and understanding conduction um, and the different types of fibers i think that's absolutely essential so what's the sort of what would you say is like the bare minimum 
kind of stuff that our students and, and our SHOs actually should have in mind when they're approaching a case that might be a neuropathy? Like just from an anatomical point of view, what what are kind of like the big things that they should be keeping first first and foremost? Well, I, th- oh, I think um, the classical pattern and why the classical pattern of length dependent symptoms is suggestive of a peripheral neuropathy. So peripheral nerves are very, very long cells. So they start in the spinal cord and they go the whole way down to your toe. That's one cell. And the axon is therefore very dependent on multiple elements to transmit the information up and down. So in the metabolic neuropathies or in CMT, it's the tips of the longest nerves that are affected or die off first. And that's why you get the length dependent pattern of deficit. So you get sensory loss in the tips of the toes in a symmetrical manner that gradually progresses up in a stocking or sock-like pattern. The motor deficit that should go goes alongside that is again length dependent so if you think about the furthest away muscle that the nerve must reach that is the ankle dorsiflexors or the uh, um and so the first problem that a patient has is standing on their heels or dorsiflexing their foot parallel hmm. to that is an uh, a non-palpable EDB, which is a very small muscle that you do have to go looking for. But then that also explains the pattern of gait that you see um, and with a high stepping because the patient can't dorsiflex their ankle to heel strike with a normal gait. So I think anatomy translates itself very nicely clinically and then to the pathological mechanism um, and so that gives you the what you're thinking about and what you're looking for, and then what could be the underlying causes. But then if you do have peripheral nervous system deficit when you're examining, so um, you don't have increased tone, you've lost your reflexes, but you have a slightly different non-length dependent pattern, that makes you think again, okay, the reflexes are gone, but it's slightly asymmetrical. There's a lot more pain. Something must be attacking the nerve in a more patchy manner. And then that leads you to think about things like vasculitis or infiltration or inflammatory lesions at different patches of the nerve. So I, I think that the anatomical basis and how they correlate to signs is, um, is, a, is a nice way to start thinking about it. That's, that's, I mean, that's great. And I mean, I think I, I sort of spend a lot of time talking to our students, you know, in third and fourth year about, you know, this kind of uh, motor nerve cell. If you're thinking about the motor nerve, like a motor nerve cell, there's a nerve root, there's a nerve, there's a neuromuscular junction, there's a muscle, and they they have a sort of signature, like three or four bullet points per area. You don't mm. need to know a textbook of neurophysiology or neuroanatomy no. to, to kind of start to recognize patterns that might make you think that's root, that's nerve, that that's beyond the nerve. And, you know, so I, I kind of like that approach myself. I think that's great. What, what about the sort of difference um, do you see kind of either history wise or examination wise, examination wise between sort of axonal and demyelinating? I, I sometimes think that's, hard for students to get their heads around why, why we might lean towards a pathology in a particular bit of a nerve. Do you know what I mean? Um, okay, so let me see. So I think uh, that's, a not, that's a further subdivision. So you're mm. going 
bit further down. So you've you've established that this person probably has a peripheral neuropathy, and you've established that um, so they're complaining of sensory abnormality and motor weakness Mm. and then you are thinking about the the rate of progression so is it a really really slowly progressive thing in a length dependent pattern with um with sensory loss or negative sensory symptoms and early onset then you're thinking about cmt and the demyelinating versus the axonal pattern which is a neurophysiological um, finding will allow you to subdivide into what's the most likely gene or not. So that's the usefulness. But clinically, or from the basis of the history and the examination, when you're dealing with a subacute onset neuropathy, um, and you're considering the condition, which is a very treatable condition, CIDP, your chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, there are some key clinical features Um, that you will ask for and look for in the patient. So um, in that situation, you would be expecting positive sensory phenomena, so pins and needles tingling, as opposed to the sensory loss you see in the inherited CMT ones. You would see a pattern of proximal and distal um, motor weakness indicating some inflammation up at the nerve root. So a polyradiculoneuropathy as well as an Apache manner um, further down. So you get hip flexor weakness, which is a very characteristic feature um, in, in CIDP. So whenever you examine, you do get the ankle dorsi flexor pattern or um, weakness pattern, you get some asymmetry quite often, but the, a combination of hip flexor and ankle dorsi flexor weakness with sensory loss and positive sensory phenomena coming on in a subacute to chronic manner, so um, over at least six weeks. That will um, help you in the acquired neuropathies, thinking about a demyelinating cause. Mm. But then again, in the acute onset neuropathies like GBS, um, the, um, the vast majority in, in our population will be a demyelinating form. Um, uh, and that tells us about where the pathology is and, and also has a significant prediction to how well the patient will do put, uh, with treatment. How do you sort of approach that uh... I'm forever trying to sort of, I'm not, I'm not really a splitter or more of a lumper in general for my kind of kind of clinical things, but I, I have found it kind of useful to think about neuropathies as being kind of focal and kind of generalized, um, being kind of motor or sensory or autonomic or mixed. I mean, how, how, I mean do, you, do you find that kind of distinction useful? To, how, do you, how do you sort of lay that out in your mind when you're thinking about neuropathies and how they kind of present in in, in patients. Okay, so I think the the um, if you you see your outpatient neuropathies and you know you're wanting to make sure you don't miss the treatable ones, the ones mm. where you make a difference and time is nerve. So the slowly progressive length dependent um, cases are are much less likely to be something that we will find the underlying treatable cause and reverse in general but there yeah. are features so the features i think as well as the pattern the features that make me set up and pay more attention or investigate more thoroughly would be a significant amount of neuropathic pain mm. 
in general, a lot of our more neuropathic discomfort than you would expect makes you think about the treatable things like vasculitis, like infiltration um, and uh, like amyloid, a lot mm. of the, the rapidity of the progression. So, for example, in a small fiber neuropathy, the vast majority of small fiber neuropathies are um, you know, metabolic. You should you know, make sure the blood sugar is okay, make sure the triglycerides are okay, um, and you're met, probably going to be symptom managing. However, if a patient progresses from small to large fiber deficit within a year, you would really be chasing amyloid, either TTOR, um, inherited amyloidosis or an AL amyloid and really looking very hard for an underlying hematological malignancy. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then pattern wise, so symmetrical versus asymmetrical or de- length dependent versus non-length dependent. Again, non-length dependent with pain makes you think about something that's attacking and infiltrating the nerve at different points. So again, the vasculitis is the infiltrate of the neurolymphomatosis um, and multifocal motor neuropathies is a gift of a diagnosis because it does exactly what it says in the tin. So you're looking for individual nerve um, deficits with no sensory correlate. So yes, pattern, but I th- honestly, I think pain and um, rate of progression are probably the best indicators of the neuropathies that you're going to be chasing. Okay. That's really useful. Actually, I think, um, is there any truth to this? I mean, certainly when I was in medical school, this notion of you know, damage to the axon leads to profound muscle wasting, damage to the myelin, to weakness with, with less wasting. I mean, I, I, I use that a fair bit, but I don't, I don't know how accurate that really is. So I think that is most accurate, our most um, important clinically in the demyelinating neuropathies. So CIDP and multifocal motor neuropathy. Mm. So if you have, um, if you are suspecting either of those conditions and you have a patient with weakness, but without muscle wasting, you would be going pretty hard to treat that and treat that quite quickly Mm. because you have axon to save. If you left that patient with say, you know, characteristically an MMN, you know, a a finger extensor weakness. If you left that, they could get a fixed weakness without treatment, but you could absolutely save and normalize their their radial nerve uh, strength with efficient treatment. And in CIDP where, um, you know, you can, diagnosis can be delayed. If you see weakness with decent muscle bulk, um, a trial of treatment if if you know you've uh, if you there aren't if even if you don't meet all of the criteria the diagnostic criteria is well worth considering if there's a suggestion of demyelinating pathology on the um, on the nerve conduction studies okay so yeah so I, I'm right then to some extent the that the, the weakness without the wasting is is as a sort of come hither sort of sign for a neurologist isn't it like let's crack on and get some let, let's let's tackle this yeah the way i say it to patients is that nerves and muscles interact with each other they talk to each other via the neuromuscular junction so it's whenever the muscle atrophies and dies off and shrivels away when it's no longer getting that input from the nerve 
And that's also a bit an explanation I use when people um, say, well, I want to exercise to build my muscles up again. Mm-hmm. I say, well, no, ankle exercises, for example, in CMT are not going to be beneficial because you don't have the connections there. There's nothing left to build. However, you can improve things like gait and balance and um, very useful functional things like how far over can you reach by working on your truncal strength and your hip flexor strength. Mm. So you can work on different muscles to compensate rather than um, trying to exercise the the wasted muscles because you're now disconnected. So if we've got a sort of clear picture um, of you know, the layout of the peripheral nervous system and this kind of notion of axon, myelin, and the kind of length dependent kind of features of neuropathies or a lot of neuropathies. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think that came to me embarrassingly late in my neurological career was the notion of kind of large fiber and small fiber and how that links up then with the central conduction of of sensory information in particular can we just before we move on to kind of more sort of kind of direct clinical things talk a little bit about what what we mean by small fiber and large fiber and why that matters okay so uh, um so small fiber neuropathy is characterized by neuropathic discomfort positive sensory phenomena hypersensitivity allodynia and most small fiber neuropathies are length dependent so again starting symmetrically in the tips of the toes it's the kind of pain that people describe that keeps them awake at night and sometimes it can be so bad that it's um it's and they develop an antalgic gait without any weakness so they can hardly walk because it's just mm. so unpleasant to put their feet down. The key really when you examine these patients is that their sensory large fibre um, modalities are intact. So vibration, sensation, proprioception are intact. They have ankle jerks but they do have a length dependent pattern of sensory abnormality whether that's a hypersensitivity to pinprick or it's a um it's a it's a change in um hot cold sensation so mm. sometimes i use and this is a blunt tool but um it can be anatomically um informative i use the the cold side of the tuning fork and mm. i said feel cold here and then i work and say does it change as i go down and you can get a length dependent pattern so that tells you about the small fiber isolated um, loss with the intact large fiber, both sensory and motor elements. So that's clinically what you're looking for. And then large fiber sensory loss should include proprioception and and, um, vibration sensation, while large fiber um, motor deficit will show up on your nerve conduction studies. You can have smaller fiber motor deficit with without that much deficit on your nerve conduction studies. Nerve conduction studies really only tell us about the 30% of the largest, fastest conducting fibers. So they're not that sensitive, in fact, and they are helpful, I think, diagnostically, but they'll miss a small fiber deficit mm. and they will um they won't they don't give you an awful lot of information about change over time time and um, so i think that's another important thing to be thinking of when you're when you're con- when you're looking at and examining um nerve conduction studies w- when it doesn't really appear to be correlating well with the patient it doesn't measure everything and are, are, are those i mean those sort of small fibers like pain and temperature 
they're sort of generally considered kind of slow conducting, non-myelinated in the main, mm-hmm. therefore more metabolically vulnerable. Is that fair? Because yeah. there's a very broad range of things that can um, annoy the small fibers. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm now talking the way I speak to a patient. Mm. So quite often we do a very, very broad screen for all the known things that can irritate the small fibers. And it's not uncommon that we don't find a cause. Yeah. So I would always tell people that is about 40% of cases where we don't find the cause of their small fiber irritation. You're doing uh, so much better than I am in that case. <laughs> <laughs> I feel well, yeah, I feel really quite bad now. <laughs> Carry on, though. Sorry to interrupt. But I also say that it can it can it may be that there was a um, a metabolic abnormality or a nutritional abnormality in the past that caused irritation to these very fine fibers that is no longer active or detectable in the body, but we're left with the damaged fibers. So that's another reason why we we do not find the cause or the, the uh, trigger. But I do find that screening for triglycerides um, and for uh, borderline HbA1c's are definitely well worth really pushing the GP to, to address because they're very um, that metabolic syndrome is a really common phenomenon associated with small fiber neuropathy. That's interesting. And then, you know, and then kind of the flip side of that, then the bigger sensory fibers are kind of fast conducting because we need that proprioceptive information quickly, don't we? And kind of mm-hmm. fire directly up the dorsal column so that we don't fall over all the time. Um, okay, that, that's really helpful. I think that's really useful kind of just thinking about the kind of layout and trying to put some kind of clinical, kind of clinical markers on those bits of the peripheral nervous system. I, I wanted to to think of kind of holistic questions um, that I I wanted to kind of go through. Um, We've talked about them, just touched them in very briefly anyway. I mean, there's quite a big difference, I think, between inpatient neurology in general and outpatient neurology, isn't there? And I I, I worry and feel for our SHOs sometimes if they just parked on the ward the whole time, they don't get down to clinic, they don't really see 80% of what we do really. Um, so, you know, if, if a patient's coming into you in the outpatient department, which is where the bulk of our time is spent, um, what, what are your sort of killer questions? I mean, it may map onto what we've already discussed, Ashley, but like, what are your killer questions that are, that are, that you're looking for to kind of guide your, you know, to a structure to your consultation? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay. So I always ask what, where, um, so very often, and this is probably my practice, a little bit different. In, uh, so people have been diagnosed with a neuropathy and they're, and they're sent to me to, to work out maybe um, what might the cause of that neuropathy be. Mm. So I often ask, so you've been told that you have a neuropathy. Um, now that you know the name for what's going on, how long ago do you think the problem started? And then I asked them what, their, what that problem was. So I suppose you would, if you were starting from scratch, you would say, what is your main problem and how did that start? Whether that was a balance problem or tripping up or weakness in the hands. And then I always explore the predominant problem first. 
and get the time of onset, the time of progression, the fun functional impact with the patient. So if it's a motor deficit, what kind of things are difficult? So uh, opening crisp packets or doing buttons, holding cutlery, cutting cut, uh, a meat or pizza with a knife and fork. That tells you a lot about function in the hand. From a gait perspective, you want to know if somebody's tripping up when they step up over um, um, over in um, you know a curb stone or something that would suggest a foot drop problem and um, you want to know things like has their walking gradually deteriorated over time so the slowly progressive neuropathies you're, you I often ask um, so in comparison to your husband or wife who you've been walking alongside for many years has your relative speed of walking slowed down so are you slower than them or you even ask the the partner has their relative speed of walking changed because mm. that usually indicates that they're progressing to that sort of um high stepping gait so that's much more effortful um so and you also want to explore things like is it is it a length dependent pattern um or have they now developed a degree of proximal weakness as well so do they have any of those proximal muscle problems like you're getting out of a low car and a lot of a low chair Another important thing with motor, um, how things develop in a motor way. So often patients with a length dependent pattern, so they have high stepping gait, they slow down relative um, to their partners, for example, when walking, they may trip a little bit up stepping up, but it's whenever they develop both ankle plantar and dorsiflexor weakness that they start to notice a new problem and that is they're very unsteady when they're trying to stand still so they can't stand for example in a bar when they have a glass they have to take one foot um, forward one foot back tiny little steps to remain stable they can't stand in a queue for the bank machine for example so that tells you that there's been an evolution from just ankle dorsi to ankle dorsi and plantar flex uh, lexer weakness because they, they really can't stabilize themselves at the ankle so that's sort of the evolution of motor questions that i would tend to ask it's always really important to go way back in the history and see if there's anything to suggest early onset mm. so key questions are developmental milestones obviously but things like um when you were in primary school could you run hop skip jump if you're in a, ten, a hundred meter race when you were in um, you know middle of primary school would you have come way up at the front in the middle down the back asking about what type of um sports they may have done in their teens could they walk in high heels can they walk in slippers without the back on them can they walk in flip-flops that tells you about um mm. Um, toe strength. Uh, some people say, oh, I, I've never been able to walk in flip-flops. I remember I was on holiday in France at the age of 11 and I just couldn't do it. And, that, and now that's very telling. That would be you're straight in the CMT um, zone with, with those kind of questions. And then I would go through deliberately the other elements of a neuropathy. So sensory. So is, do you feel normally? Is there, is there any loss of feeling in your feet? If I put, if you, if I closed your eyes and you had no socks on, I put your foot on a cold tiled floor or a, a carpeted floor, could you tell the difference? Have you ever had any ulcers or have you ever taken your shoe off and it was bleeding and you didn't know how you cut it? That tells you about sensory loss. The positive sensory phenomena are, are easier to elicit and people usually come to you with them. But the sensory deficit can be, people can be unaware of that. 
And then there's the questions about large fiber sensory loss. So you're thinking about, you know, Romberg's type um, features. So often a common thing is, do you need to hold on to the side of the shower whenever you close your eyes to rinse your hair? Um, and then whenever the sensory proprioceptive loss becomes more marked, you, the people usually evolve to not being able to take their jumper or top off without sitting down on the edge of the bed. So you usually say, yeah, a couple of years ago, I noticed I had to hold on to the side of the shower. Then people tend to either start having a bath or sitting down in the shower. And then they tend to notice that they have to sit down to take their jumper off. Um, and then I always ask about any cranial nerve features. And then I ask about dysautonomia. Um, because that, again, is a, you know, makes you think about very specific um, neuropathies, diabetic neuropathy, but also the amyloid neuropathies. So, and, um, and when you say dysautonomia, Ashley, like, so what, what are specifically are you wanting to hear from a patient that would draw you towards a kind of autonomic involvement? So, um, you know, orthostatic hypotension. So if you stand up, um, do you feel very lightheaded? Do you ever, are you, do you faint? Are you prone to fainting? Is that increasing in frequency over time? And that's a very common symptom. So that on its own wouldn't be enough. You'd obviously also record lion, um, supine and um, standing up blood pressure after three minutes and looking for a significant drop. But also things like lightheadedness on eating and feeling full up very quickly. Um, a change in bile habits so that it, that fluctuates between diarrhea and constipation. And that particular marker of GI dysautonomia is being woken in the middle of the night with diarrhea. That's a really uncommon feature. GI dysautonomia also re results in weight loss. You also ask about changes in sweating. So those okay. types of features. And I think I, I spend a lot of time obviously teaching the medical students that, you know, mostly bladder and bowel symptoms would be a pointer towards a central nervous system problem, like sort of spinal cord or higher. Mm. Um, I guess neuropathy can catch you out like that a little bit then, can't it, where you can kind of end up focusing on the wrong bit mm. because of those symptoms. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so sphincter involvement is, is in particular, you think about something very infiltrative, really, for if you lose your sphincter control with a neuropathy. But the, the dysautonomia features um, do affect bowel and bladder, and also erectile dysfunction is important. So there are different elements and different features that can be part of specific neuropathies that make you think, uh, again, about them pathological process um, and how those elements of the anatomy can be involved in that. There are, there are obviously kind of endless tests or seemingly endless tests you can do for most things in medicine these days. Uh, I worry a bit as a, as, a, as a sort of neurologist, general neurologist, it's like half my week is general neurology, um, that I'm doing some of my neuropathy patients a disservice by drawing a line on their investigations maybe a bit early. Um, and I I still feel after a decade of doing it that I feel I find that hard. So, you know, if I've I got a like, like, like all of us, a lot of patients with axonal sensory neuropathies where we've gone through the kind of standard sort of investigation, drawn a bit of a blank, like you say, often you do, um, or even a sort of mixed sensory motor neuropathy that's been there a long time and has just very gradually progressed. Um, what are what are the sort of next level tests? So assuming you've done your kind of 
autoimmune screens and your kind of metabolic profiles and your inflammatory markers and uh, look for myeloma, make sure they're not B12 deficient, not make sure they're not drinking alcohol in excess, all those kind of things that, you know, they can sneak by you, drugs um, that they could be on. What's that sort of next level? I'm thinking more for our registrars now and for like, you know, myself. Uh, um, where should we go next? So you're really talking about the idiopathic axonal neuropathy, mm. the people that you've done the, you know, the textbook neuropathy screen and haven't found something to treat or reverse, but it's typically a quite a slowly progressive length dependent process, which can be just sensory or sensory and motor. Mm. But that, that's, and, and usually onset in sort of age 50, 60, 70 year old people, that, that kind of thing. Isn't that what? Bingo. That's exactly what I'm after. Loads of them, isn't there? <laughs> loads, yes. Yeah. So I think, I think being realistic with the patient is really important because you can over-investigate. And very often, all the tests will not actually yield anything more for them. So whenever you've done the primary test, I usually, or the primary set of tests, I usually say, I'm going to see you again in a year. And we can, I'll re-examine you. And I will um, we'll think about repeating your physiology. And if things are pretty much the same for you this time next year, then it's very unlikely that this nerve damage is going to cause an awful lot of problems for you. So I think what we're going to concentrate on here is symptom management and supportive care. Mm. Like a orthotics good physiotherapy and you know for the sensory people have got sensory dis, uh, um, discomfort managing that symptomatically so i think i try to be realistic from quite early on because you can you need to be able to set people's expectations appropriately if this neuropathy isn't going to disable them very significantly or you know cause their lives to end earlier it is something they're going to live with so that's that is going to represent a very large proportion but if we think about the sensory axonal late onset neuropathies on their own a very exciting recent discovery is the canvas gene so canvas gene is a um is a um, repeat expansion that causes a very characteristic phenotype in a in a proportion of people so it's a, it's a late onset sensory axonal neuropathy with a vestibulopathy so you get an abnormal visual ocular reflex or head thrust test there are a, a myriad of other features and it's usually it's um, found in siblings in a family so it's an autosomal recessive um, repeat expansion and with onset in the 50s 60s and 70s so you see a patient with a length dependent sensory axonal neuropathy, but they're even more unsteady than, than their neuropathy alone explains. And what, um, through screening this repeat expansion in um, a broad range of populations, it's actually found that not all the patients with the, the, the genetic abnormality have all of the features. And in a quite a large cohort of Italian idiopathic axonal sensory neuropathy patients, the canvas mutation was found in, a de- in I think about 20%. Wow. So yeah, so I think that is a new thing. Again, 
late onset idiopathic sononeuropathy, we've always suspected that is it, a, is it a mild form of a CMT or inherited neuropathy? And, and this is the first really nice um, piece of evidence that is helping us, but that does tend to be uh, sensory only. Right. Okay. I mean, I, I wonder sometimes, so I've gone through little kind of like, it's like pendulum swings in your practice sometimes, isn't it? Where you miss something and then you get uber, uber investigative for a while and then you kind of swing back again. So I think when I started, I was doing lots of CT, thorax, abdomen, pelvis, occasional SPECT scans, occasional lumbar puncture, sometimes nerve biopsies and things, just really not wanting to miss something. Um, I find I'm doing less of that now. Is, 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 that a, is it reasonable to do less of that as you become a bit more comfortable with the uncertainty? Yeah, I think, I think if, we're, if we're talking about these quite featureless, slowly progressive length dependent, not that painful axonal mm. neuropathies, I think that all of those tests really aren't suggested. I do, I have, however, found um, a couple of vasculitises in, in, um, in what appears to be a length-dependent axonal motor and sensory neuropathy. But those are the people that I was pushed to um, investigate more because they really did complain of more neuropathic pain than the average person. Yeah. Really, you know, very difficult refractory pain that doesn't respond to one or two neuropathic pain medications. And if you think about how vasculitis um, picks off nerves or branches of nerves, it's very nice if you get a big, large branch picked off early on, and then you see the definite mononeuritis multiplex pattern. But if you've got lots of small little branches that evolve in over a year or two, it can look very length dependent by the time they get to you. Um, and so can the nerve conduction studies look quite length dependent in pattern. So in the idiopathic axonal neuropathies, the motor plus sensory ones, um, the ones with, that do have more pain, I do consider nerve biopsy with a specific um, thinking about vasculitis because yes, vasculitis of the nerve often appears as part of a systemic vasculitic process, but that's kind of easy for us to identify. There's other clues. It's when it's an isolated peripheral nerve vasculitis, that's difficult and that's only going to be diagnosed with tissue and it's all with us as neurologists to decide on treatment and, and oversee something as potentially toxic as cyclophosphamide. So that's when I would consider a nerve biopsy. Okay, that's really helpful actually. Um, and, and with lumbar puncture, are we thinking more you know, we're, we're thinking about those more proximal symptoms and those more sort of demyelinating, more motor stuff in the main. Yeah. So again, in a neuropathy, what, when is a lumbar puncture helpful? So in, um, in Guillain-Barre, you're looking for the typical albunocytological um, dissociation. You don't want cells. You do want to see the protein up. Um, whenever you're considering CIDP, again, it's part of the diagnostic criteria. Um, but you're also thinking about those CIDP mimics. Um, so things like neurolymphomatosis or um, poems can look like CIDP. Um, but in the neurolymphomatosis, you may, especially if there's a lot of proximal infiltrative abnormalities on the MRI scan at the, at the lumbar nerve roots, you may actually catch some cells. So doing cytology and spin, and um, it, that can be diagnostically helpful in, in those situations. But again, from the history, you should be 
suspicious of an there's some should be something atypical about your um your presentation there should be more pain there should be something else going on to 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 to, to make you want to consider those alternatives maybe they did respond to treatment or something like that so i'm feeling better talking to you ashley now because um I'm feeling like uh, maybe I'm not doing such a bad job in my general neurology clinic <laughs> after all. Um, okay, so we talked about outpatient neuropathies, and I think that's um, it's a really nice kind of sequence of how to approach that. It's really great. When, the, when you're a junior doctor and you're faced with a patient who's been admitted in a more sort of acute or kind of subacute fashion and has gone off their legs a bit, um, and obviously the sort of the, the things that I sort of think about in that regard are either like the vasculitic ones or the sort of GBS, CIDP overlap kind of thing, depending on the kind of pace of change. Um, what, what should our, what, what are the sort of killer questions about inpatient neuropathy, do you think, for, particularly for our SHOs, kind of frontline, kind of maybe non-specialist SHO? Mm-hmm. Okay, so so um, I suppose when you're wondering, so an inflammatory demyelinating neuropathy is it GBS or is it CIDP? Mm. So in GBS, it's a monophasic post-infectious neuropathy. So there, the inflammation or the abnormality in the behaviour of the immune system is triggered by an infection and in the majority of cases you can get a history of a diarrheal illness or an upper respiratory tract infection sometimes even precipitated by um, a vaccination or another pro-immune event but there's a trigger to it so it's not an intrinsic abnormality of how the immune system is functioning in that person it's a triggered event and it's that post-infectious inflammatory um, explosion, if you like, that irritates and demyelinates the the the, um, the nerve. The nerve, the symptoms then come on in in the time scale you would expect. So within about sort of ten to fourteen days, but that's when the nerve attack is happening. Switching off the inflammation is what we do with our treatment. So IVIG plasma exchange dampens down or um, tries to settle the nerve attack but we only need to give that once then we have to stop and wait until the nerve improves so the plateau phase and nerve regrows at about one millimeter per month so if there's a lot of inflammation at the beginning and the patient is very weak that plateau phase can last for months but if everything else is compatible with a Guillain-Barre diagnosis you really have to hold fire and support the patient through that time period. Because our very recent trial, that randomized control trial, that compared severe Guillain-Barre in the patients who had just one IVIG versus people who had a second course of IVIG because of their apparent plateau phase. The patient with the second course of IVIG didn't do any better in the end up and actually there was a significantly higher rate of complications. Mm. So um, clots, heart attacks, um, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and one or two deaths. So I think it's really important for us to really think about what 
is happening in GBS, what the initial um, pathology is to the nerve, we treat it appropriately and then we support the patient as the nerve regrows. And doing that properly and hold and fire is, is really um, important to the patient's outcome and safety. It's awfully hard to do that sometimes, isn't it? Yep. I think, isn't it? Particularly yeah. if they're in ICU where, you know, like a, like a few days is a long time in ICU if, yeah. you're an in, if you're an intensive care consultant. Whereas I think I've, I've had a couple of patients in ICU for a year or more with GBS. I'm sure you have too. And, you know, you feel like, a, you feel, <laughs> feel like well, you must do something. But mm-hmm. really, it's... Well, this is the whole point of that trial. Yeah. Doing something more to treat yourself and your own anxiety is officially worse for the patient. Hooray! So, <laughs> the, the best thing we can do as neurologists is really closely document and accurately document the um the clinical state of the patient you know this is why we are taught to do mrc scores properly and this is why we do our muscle groups and do our tests the same way every single day because Mm. it's um, time to nadir within six weeks and then plateau and that's what you're really trying to prove and document so that you know you're doing the right thing now there are neuropathies that are not post-infectious monophasic inflammatory. So they are non-GBS, but can present in a GBS-like fashion. So if there is clear clinical fluctuation past six weeks, then that's different. Hmm. But I think it brings it back again to the importance of paying really close attention to the patient and being very good and documenting clearly your neurological findings because that's where we get most of our information from had a a nice experience recently of seeing the guy in my emergency clinic with a clearly a a very fit and healthy guy in his early 60s kind of progressive neuropathic sounding motor presentation over about eight weeks nine weeks something like that effectively had gone off his legs by the time he made it to my clinic uh, because it was kind of peri-lockdown Mm. Um, when he started to develop it. And, and he has CIDP and it's doing really nicely now. Um, mm. So, I mean, I, I, I don't see it very often. I was, you know, quite excited to beat him. And <laughs> we had been in hospital a while. He's doing really well, like I say. But w- w- when should our juniors be thinking about that? I mean, other than that the time course is too long for GBS, any other kind of little things that, that they should be mindful of? Yeah, so subacute to chronic onset, sensory plus motor symptoms, motor predominant, and mm. that combination of proximal and distal um, uh, weakness. Um, leg predominant, but quite often the hands, a little bit of asymmetry. Again, thinking about what's happening. There's inflammation attacking different patches of the nerves. That's what you see clinically. That's what you see in your physiology. Conduction block, eh, absent F waves. Um, you know, it, it obeys again what it says in the tin, chronic inflammatory um, demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy. So at different points on the nerve, particularly up at the nerve root. So it's an, a non-painful thing. There's no dysautonomia. There shouldn't be any constitutional symptoms. Um, and uh, there shouldn't be a significant amount of pain. 
you can occasionally, but very, very rarely see um, cranial nerve involvement in CIDP, while in comparison to that, Guillaume Barre has cranial nerve involvement in about 20, 25%. Mm -hmm. And again, dysautonomia in a significant proportion. So those are helpful differentiators. Okay. What about kind of the manage early management of CIDP, the sort of IVIG versus steroid as a first line treatment. Can can we just kind of briefly touch on that and what what's your practice around that? Okay, so <clears throat> efficacy wise, um, patients with CIDP about sixty to seventy percent will respond very well to steroids, while about seventy to eighty percent of these from you know a range of trials will respond well to IVIG. So different trusts have different policies. Some trusts insist that all patients with CIDP should be treated with steroids first line. It's cheaper, can be done at home. There's a very good uh, overall um, efficacy of it. In our trust, we do give IVIG first line, and that's on the basis of side effect profile. Um, and there isn't an awful lot of brilliant data on that, but uh, because steroids have been around far too long for anybody to be bothered doing a head-to-head -head trial looking at that. But, you know, personal experience, we've all seen how many complications come along with or high-dose oral steroids. We're talking about 60 of PrEP for six weeks with a gradual down titration by five milligrams per month. So that's a lot of steroids. Mm. You're talking about bone protection, PPIs. And you're talking about in a 60 to 70-year-old population. So, you know, you're, you are going to see complications with that. So, um, you can give either first line, very effective. We tend to give IVIG, but we, um, we have an IVIG algorithm. So what, the way we do it is we use at least three outcome measures. And this has recently been integrated to the Department of Health IVIG guidelines for neurology. So we use at least three relevant to the patient and specific to the neuropathy. So usually the CIDP ROD score or the MMN ROD score, which is a patient disability score, the MRC SUM score um, and the 10 meter timed walk and or hand grip strength measured with the vigorometer. And we do those pre-treatment, and then we give the patient three treatments of two grams per kilogram. Um, and, uh, um, and then after the third treatment, we remeasure all of the outcome measures. That tells us if that's an induction trial, and that can show us good objective evidence of improvement in response to IVIG. So in those people, we then try to establish maintenance dose. So we, um, we do that very individually. So we stop the treatment and we tell the patient to come back and tell us as soon as their symptoms recur. Some people, their symptoms recur at seven weeks, some at four weeks, and we start their maintenance treatment at one week earlier than their symptoms recur. Right. And then we start to gradually down titrate the IVIG dose they get. So if they start at two grams per kilogram, we go by, down by 20% until again they get a symptom remission. And then we set their maintenance dose at their frequency and at the dose higher than the one that they relapsed at. So everybody has a very individualized um, setting. And so they're just on enough to keep them stable. 
And then we continue that treatment for at least a year, but we tell everybody that about 40% of people with CIDP, their inflammation burns out in about a year or two. So we will always do a cessation trial, even if people are completely stable, because you clinically cannot tell the difference between somebody who's perfectly controlled in IVIG and somebody whose CIDP is burnt out. So we used to do things like gradually stretch out the, the treatments or gradually down titrate the dose, but I get nervous, the patient gets nervous. So is there a wee bit of a symptom recurrence? It's really hard to tell. So now we do a cessation trial. So we get the patient on board and we say, right, we're just stopping and come back to us if you think your symptoms are coming back. And again, we do the outcome measures before their cessation trial. And again, when they feel that they're worse. And if there is a meaningful difference, and these are all validated scales, so there is, um, we either are MCIDs or minimal changes that can, that suggest meaningful or um, pathological change and meaningful functional change to the patient, then we have again objective evidence to feed back to the IVIG database and to prove that this patient does still need IVIG. And that's really important in the older people who, you know, as they get older, their risk associated with IVIG, the thromboembolic risk is increasing. So you really need that evidence. And, and, and those numbers are really, really helpful when you're prescribing something with potentially higher risk as time goes on, but also something that's really expensive. But it's not just the money, it's also the impact on a person's life. Um, so to make that decision, all of that data is, uh, and again, close clinical monitoring is, is really very helpful. Do you think we'll be moving a bit more towards treatments like rituximab, Ashling, over time? And, you know, are we going to get the data to support that? So, so I think, that, so CIDP is such a, it's a big umbrella term. There's a whole, mm. there's a massive clinical spectrum in there, but there's a really broad um, spectrum of immu different immunopathogenicities. Some uh, and that isn't worked out or we can't detect that very well at this point in time. So we just go quite blunderbuss with steroids or IVIG. Um, and, you know, we're treating everybody, making sure everybody gets a, a chance to get better. But I think that, so, so there are, there is a active trial in France of rituximab and IVIG or in CIDP. And we are currently planning a rituximab CIDP trial and, and um, rituximab trial in the paranodal positive antibody um, CIDP patients here. So I think there will be a subset of patients with CIDP who will respond well and there will be other patients with what we label as CIDP that will not respond to that particular immune therapy. But there are also other clinical trials coming um, at the minute. There's the optic trial and the optic trial is in new onset IVIG and it prescribes IVMP alongside IVIG for six months. And the background would suggest that that is much more likely to induce remission than IVIG alone, but that's yet to report. So we're recruiting to that now. And then there's also the, the ROSA trial. So ROSA is a monoclonal antibody against the FC gamma receptor. And it's kind of, I suppose, plasma exchange in a bottle. So it mm. does one of the things that IVIG does, but IVIG is a 
does has a multitude of effects but what rosa does is switch off or increase the metabolism of the intrinsic antibody so if there's something an antibody attacking the nerve or the myelin that will reduce the production of that antibody so again i i suspect a subset but not all cidp patients will respond specifically to that therapy so i think there is a lot of um there's a lot of immune pathology to be picked apart um, and it may be that therapeutic trials will actually inform us about that and help us select out those patients that's really interesting the the, the steroid trial you mentioned steroid ivig kind of co-trial uh, in the dim dusty recesses of my brain there was a study wasn't there that suggested remission was response rate was lower with steroids but remission rate was slightly better than ivig where it was the flipped the other way around is that right yes yeah, so that's quite a small trial and that's yeah. the of this new so that was done by the dutch and it's again the dutch that are leaving leading an international multi-center trial um to sort of prove that much more definitively so yes that trial was a small maybe about 10 15 patients in each arm and it just compared ivig to ivmp and again as you say very very similar um response rates so about 60 to 70 percent in each group responded well but six months later um the IVIG people who responded pretty much all relapsed and required maintenance IVIG, whereas a very significant proportion, I think about 50 to 60% of the IVMP group stopped treatment after six months and didn't relapse six months later. So that's a whole mm. year. So it's on the basis of that small, relatively short follow-up study that we're exploring now whether IVMP is something to give to induce remission and not just to induce symptom resolution. I found uh, a couple of years ago I found the benefit of a really switched on excellent registrar came to the fore in one of my non-responder CIDP patients who'd originally been treated as a sort of GBS but it was just on the cusp and he'd done quite well first time with IVAG, then he relapsed, had a second lot of IVIG, didn't do so well, still relapsed, diagnosed with CIDV, put him on steroids, did it okay, but then he got a lot worse. And he was really, really struggling. And my registrar dug up a paranodal antibody mm. on this guy uh, with, a, with a really stellar bit of, you know, tenacious ringing around the UK and firing off bits of serum to various labs. Uh, and we and he's done really, really well on rituximab, this mm. particular patient. So um, I think my hat's off to my registrar, who whose educational supervisor hasn't heard the end of it from me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, yeah, so I, you know, my my all my limited experience of CADP is yes, you know, a bit like Parkinson's, which is my thing mostly. You know, it's an umbrella term as well, isn't it? And uh, you know, it, within that, there's a, a smorgasbord of things which mm. will inevitably respond differently yes and it's those uh, it's those non-responders um, that you have to be really careful about there's a whole load of stuff that can be stuck that can be hidden in there i mean tt or amyloid can have very slow conduction velocities um poems can be in there with very demyelinating looking um changes in the upper limbs so it's it's you know it's it's not uncommon 
for these diagnoses to be made in people who were initially felt to meet even the neurophysiological diagnostic criteria of CIDP, which again are quite broad and all encompassing so that we don't miss the people with potentially treatable diseases, but capture a wee bit too many fish when we throw the net that wide. Mm. So, so if, uh, if there's a bit of a rabbit off and they're not behaving as you would want them to, you'd, you know, as, as in a lot of things, take a step back and just go at it again. Yeah. That's really yeah. useful. So um, veg, really helpful thing to look at. Um, oh, I think I've, I'm, I'm losing my video here. You're back veg, again. Okay. And PTOR genetics is, are, is really helpful. Okay. I wanted, um, I've taken up a lot of your evening, Ashling, and I, want, I don't want to keep you too long. In terms of kind of testing neuropathies, is there, is there anything new coming along for our, for our future neurologists or the people here kind of thinking, well, maybe I'll do neurology, but, you know, it's got a reputation. Uh, I'm not drawn to its reputation. Um, what can we sell them? particularly with neuropathies, what can, we, what can we excite them with, do you think, in the next kind of five or 10 years? Um, I think we're on the cusp of some really exciting biomarkers, peripheral nerve-specific biomarkers. Um, so neurofilament light chain, you know, there's an explosion of the uses of that. Um, but it is a, it's predominantly in central nervous system diseases. Mm. And there are some studies that show that Samoa, so very highly sensitive um, uh, uh, testing of neurofilament light chain can also um, be raised in certain neuropathies. Again, the, probably the axonal ones. There's some data to suggest that there's a bit of a correlation with how badly affected the neuropathy the nerve is. But it doesn't really tell us very much. What would be really fun would be if we had a peripheral nerve axonal and a peripheral nerve myelin biomarker that could tell us even potentially before we see the clinical signs where the primary damage is occurring and can tell us things like if somebody does have burnt out CIDP and they're nice and stable in IVIG, if there's none of the myelin biomarker in their blood. We don't need to do that cessation trial business. We can do a blood test to tell us, wouldn't mm. that be? We can, um, we can differ, we can potentially even find the, in the chemotoxic neuropathy. So some people have horrendous um, neuropathy, secondary chemotherapy, and some people just get away with a wee bit of a tingle. But if we could, serially test in their blood as they're having their chemotherapy and identify those in which nerve damage is occurring before they get the fixed damage. We could again um, you know, adjust their chemotherapeutic regime to prevent significant um, side effects. So I think that um, there, are, there are really quite exciting um, scientific and translational medicine advances that are very, very close to fruition that are, are going to make neuropathy more interesting, but also a more um, sort of impactful specialization for, uh, you know, to, for patients. I had, a, I had a disappointing experience recently of doing 
a skin biopsy, which I believe was taxied to London uh, mm-hmm. for, for a guy with really awful sort of sensory, kind of small fiber, painful kind of presentation. And, um, you know, neurophysiology, completely normal, all the, basically all of his tests normal. And I was thinking, sure, I'm sure, sure to find it. Uh, small fiber damage in his skin biopsies. Uh, and so we sort of biopsied a, f- a couple of areas in, in affected regions of his body and, and find absolutely nothing. Um, are, are we going to be, should we be doing skin biopsies and things? Or do, do, you, do you think that's a kind of interesting destination for testing as well, for the, more for the sensory things, I would think? So I, I don't tend to do skin biopsies for small fiber neuropathies because it, it tells you what you probably already know, yeah. which is that their, their phenotype is that of a small fiber neuropathy. So yes, it does have a higher sensitivity in diagnosis than small fiber neurophysiology, but it's still not 100%. Hmm. So you're looking for a significant reduction in the intraepidermal nerve fibers. It doesn't give you anything about the underlying pathology or cause. So, and what's it going to tell you to do you're still going to manage this person symptomatically so i don't use it clinically there are suggestions that uh, from the um transthyretin amyloidosis gene therapy trials that skin biopsies are a very sensitive early marker of uh, of neuropathic involvement and nerve involvement is essential for patients um, meeting criteria to start the gene therapy because mm. you can, that's a, a late onset disease and develops in your 50s or 60s. So symptoms and, and evidence of nerve involvement and um, having a, a low um, threshold for that diagnosis is helpful. Um, so skin, um, now Dave Bennett in, uh, in Oxford does quite a lot of work on the small fiber genetic um, um, neuropathies and he has some research level work that he does on skin biopsies and also ISP cells that he grows um, in cultures um, but clinically I don't see it as an essential thing um, I'm interested practice sorry yeah I mean I'm really interested in your in your gene therapy kind of comment there because it, that does seem to be an emerging theme in quite a few of these podcasts we've done Talk to sort of Tim Williams up in Newcastle about MND and some of the kind of gene trials. Um, talking to medical students about kind of gene therapy for Huntington's. Uh, are, are we are we seeing a similar sort of move for some of the sort of monogenic neuropathies at the minute as as well? So um, so not the CMTs just yet, but. Mm. Um, Transthyretin amyloidosis, I mean, it's absolutely amazing the difference, the clinical impact that gene therapy has. So transthyretin amyloidosis is a, transthyretin is a um, thyroid, it's a transporter gene and a mutation in that is amyloidogenic and to the nerve, to the heart, and sometimes to the back of the eye, depending on the mutation in that gene. And you can basically cut out that gene and it doesn't really make a major difference or other ways to transport the protein. So you can do without that gene essentially. And doing without the gene does not only stop the progression, but actually causes regression in symptoms and in the amyloid deposits in the affected organs. 
So um, it is the, the gene trials, and there are two different gene trials that published about a year and a half ago. And the, the clinical difference to the patients and just purely on neuropathy scores, mobility, function, were really impressive. Mm. And so uh, Professor Riley now, alongside the Royal Free National Amyloidosis Centre, they run, the, and they have a, a range of patients who are on, uh, um, on open label, but also being started officially on, on the drug. And there is a meaningful impact because transthyretin amyloidosis, the mean um, more the people would be dead in about seven to ten years and it's a really horrible multi-system disease with cardiac involvement really marked dysautonomia and a very painful disabling neuropathy and rather than that um, rapid progression to death people people are stabilizing and improving and when you see people year on year and you can see it with your own eyes it's really amazing i told the medical students neurology wasn't depressing would they <laughs> listen to me Yes, they bloody well should. Uh, yeah, that's that's lovely. I mean, that's an amazing story. I, I think that's a really nice place to potentially leave this because I think what we, we're, we're, you know, we don't have an amazing reputation as a specialty, to be fair, do we, at times? Um, and, and I think, you know, that, <laughs> I think unfairly these days, um, and, uh, you know, to have kind of messages about the kind of therapeutic options for patients with very debilitating neurological problems, be that acute neuropathies, uh, subacute neuropathies, or genetic neuropathies, that's a really powerful message for why people should get interested in these things, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, I, I do my spe my specialize in the acquired and the inflammatory stuff because I love making people better. Mm. You know, that that's the whole point of it, isn't it? Yes, I couldn't agree more. Ashley, we've finished every single one of these with a, a kind of look back in time message to your younger self as a oh. as a kind of trainee, maybe pre pre neurology specialization or maybe like first year registrar. Um, is there something that you've kind of gleaned from being a consultant and being battered by the NHS for decades um, that you wished you'd known? then something that our, our juniors could take forward with them maybe i'm actually going to quote a, a physiotherapist who um said something to me that has really stuck with me and actually i've gone back to and it's helped me so many times so um siobhan mccauley's a neurology physiotherapist in belfast where i trained and um i remember we were people were complaining about yet another sort of either a change to the educational structure or change to the, um, the career pathway or just some NHS type change that was complicating everything. And what Siobhan said to me was, and she was maybe about 10 years older than me at the time, she said, oh, the amount of times that there's been these massive structural changes and I, I, you know, I've felt that the world's fallen apart, but actually when you're face to face with a patient, nothing changes it's mm. how you interact with the patient and in fact no matter what kind of fancy tests and how whatever way we are may, may be working how we decide and go through the history and the examination that one-to-one -one interaction with a patient and listening to the patient and putting the patient in the absolute center of your decision making process that's what it's all about that's brilliant. I love that. 
Uh, and that, that definitely speaks to me as a clinician and a, as a general neurologist um, as well. You know, and I totally agree. I, and it, I'm just, I, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Mm. Talking to people and thinking, I might be able to figure this out. <laughs> or even sometimes you, you go in and you think, oh, I, I completely know what I'm going to find here. And then you examine somebody and it's totally different and mm. you have to respond to that. I think that's fun, isn't it? Dr. Ashling Carr there on the importance of face-to-face clinical neurology and the wisdom of physiotherapists. Thanks for listening to the Tease Neuro podcast. You can get them wherever you get your podcast, which I'm guessing you already know if you're listening to this one. Don't forget you can get more information from the teaseneuro.org website. Coming up on the horizon, stroke and TIA, sleep medicine, dementia, neurointensive care, and the neurology of space travel.